science and technology as I thought I wouldn't for a second. The biggest thing you can do about getting growth into the UK economy is to shrink the size of the state. It uh, may be open to academic uh, discussion, uh, but the, the hard facts of history show you repeatedly that states grow slower when they get past something around about 35 to 40% public sector. There's a nice big ECB study done in 2008 which uh, unusually for something at the ECB I actually have time for. It's detailed um, and it's historic and it shows that something like 0.13 of a percent goes out the growth rate for every 1% over somewhere in the high 30s. So getting the state back to where it would have been 10 years ago in size would give us about 1.5% per annum growth. That's not just a UK problem, that is of course a problem right the way across Europe. Uh, you see it even more extremely in the regions in the UK. The growth rates of the regions in the UK um, move in a very nice line. The greater the public sector in the region, the lower the growth rate, which makes entire sense. Um, some parts of the public sector do contribute to growth. Most don't. Uh, we need to actually have a smaller state. The government's bet on getting to a smaller state was that we would have growth. 
problem is we haven't got any growth, so there's only one way to get to a small estate, which means real, genuine cuts, as opposed to the marginal stuff that's currently in the budget. And it is marginal. Um, the consequences would be horrible, painful, and politically very difficult. But if you want growth, the main thing you need to do is to actually cut the size of the state. Move on to the next sort of uh, statement, which is a simple one. Uh, longer term, definitely wouldn't have the same impact in five years, would in 10 or 15. We need to get an education system which perhaps has more echoes of the Swiss, um, or the Swedish, or the Singaporeans for some reason seem to end up somewhere near the top of every innovation and growth league you ever get. And they have educational systems which have less people doing university degrees in general, more people doing some form of higher vocational education. The Swiss are particularly good at it, though it varies a bit by canton. So less people through university might help actually with the public spending cuts and would add something very, very simple to the economy which is all those people wasting their time doing third-class honours in subjects which are of no relevance to the economy, could actually be doing something of relevance to the economy for three years instead. And longer working weeks and less holidays actually give rise to growth too. Nobody seems to have been putting them forward, but uh, it's not a coincidence that the Swiss have the longest working week in Europe. Now the next one. Um, Monetary Policy Committee. We have a, policy, a committee of the very great and good, solidly economists, which isn't necessarily a good thing, um, um, which is supposed to keep our inflation at 2%. Anybody in the room know why we have a 2% target for inflation? Nobody. No, there's a good reason for that, sir. Well, you said 2.5%, that was considered roughly compensating for overstatement of inflation in the index and also greasing the wheels. Yeah, well, that's about right. That's November 2003 you're back to, which is the last time there was any policy statement on this. Um, according to Mervyn's last letter, and I love Mervyn's letters, by the way, he spends half a page signing his signature. Now, if that doesn't show some psychological defect, I don't know what does. Um, um, it's quite interesting if you have a look at the handwriting books, what it says it leads to. Arrogance and overbearing are words they use. Um, there's just absolutely no support for that 2%. Mervyn's last letter said that the 2% target would lead to the highest and most stable rates of growth. I don't have any evidence to support that. I can't find any. If you actually look empirically at the last 30 years, it would appear that we have both the highest and the most stable growth rates with inflation somewhere around about 3.5%, which is basically what happened in the 1990s. So maybe we need to get the right right target. It's also quite remarkable that this very important part of the UK economy is unelected, entirely economist, and virtually useless. Its ability to, con to forecast inflation 12 months forwards is dire. I mean, it really is dire. Um, if this was in any form of commercial enterprise, it would have been cut out as an unnecessary overhead. Um, what you do about it, I don't know, but it doesn't work well. Um, and when you read some of the musings on quantitative easing, it's terrifying that these people are in control of our economy. Finally, the bit I'm supposed to talk about, science and technology. Um, science and technology, there's a lot of work gone into trying to get our policy right. Lots of good-meaning people have spent a lot of time on it, and to some effect, some of it has worked really quite well. Some of it hasn't. Um, the most general thing I would say is we still 
tend to be two penny packet in what we do with our science and technology. David Willits announced 250 million for the biosciences a couple of days ago. In 26 pieces, scattered all over the UK. They're probably all reasonable sort of projects, but actually we'd get far more benefit out of having fewer centres of excellence rather than scattering the money about the countryside like confetti. Then over to the area I'm supposed to know about, venture capital. Been a venture capitalist for a long time. I love venture capital. I do a lot of angel investing myself. And I've made a lot of money doing it. But it's small and weak in the UK. Small and weak all over Europe. It's a bit better in the US, though it hasn't been good there in recent times. And most of the larger names in this industry in the UK have actually vanished. It's now a really quite small activity venture capital in the UK. And here's why. These are the returns from funds. So this was the lot that actually got the little internet and telecom boom. So respectable rate of return, 20-odd. Thereafter, crap. Uh, mostly below deposit rates, below what you get out of the building society. Now that's telling you something really quite severe. It's telling you there isn't a shortage of capital in venture capital. There's a shortage of good enough business models. This is a very unpopular view. Um, most people want to have an equity gap. That enables them to generate businesses um, that fill the equity gap and make it worse, of course, because if you pour more money into an area where there's weak demand, you actually make it worse. You displace the good activity and encourage the bad. So in venture capital, the industry has gone hurtling downwards. So it again, another way. Amount of money across Europe declining. These, by the way, are not. These are in actual euros, not uh, inflation adjusted. So it's actually a bit worse. And then you can see it in the UK. This is venture capital as a percentage of buyout activity. The industry is very small and getting quite immaterial. One last thing bef uh, before I sit down and shut up. There's one other thing which we need to do for growth, which is not on many people's agendas. We are currently running at approximately a 30-year low in corporate bankruptcies. This is good, isn't it? No, it isn't. There is a healthy level of corporate failure in any free market economy, and we're operating well below it. There's echoes of this right through the system. We don't let anything fail. Banks, countries, currency unions, nothing's allowed to fail nowadays. But actually, the fact that we have a very low rate of failure means that we have got progressively more of the economy trapped in no growth, low growth, or negatively growing businesses where we could do with moving the good people and the good assets into better areas of the economy where they would generate growth. The numbers are not immaterial. Impossible to do the calculations accurately, but something like 8 or 10% of the private sector workforce or working in companies which at the average failure rate of the last 30 years would have gone bust. That's literally the magnitude of it. So if that's true, that's taking some tenths of a percent out of growth, possibly half a percent. I'll shut up and sit down. Thank you.
Could I start with a, an apology because um, my organisation skills were such that I do have most of what I'm going to say on a PowerPoint, but I don't have it available electronically, so um, apologies for that. I will send it electronically, so if anybody wants it afterwards, you're happy to have it. But I can cover the main points already. I will not give you too many facts and figures, um, but those will be in the PowerPoint. Um, a number of questions were posed, and I will give you a, a, a response to them. One was, you know, in the present environment, where in the present government and business environment, what level of support is that providing for science on the one hand and innovation on the other? Basically, the government support for science remains surprisingly strong. The policies are such that resources are getting concentrated into a relatively small number of elite universities but it does mean in the UK is enormously competitive no matter how much we denigrate ourselves and it doesn't matter how you look at it um, we produce more citations per unit of input more highly citations per unit of input a high level of patent applications the most highly cited articles in the world it is without question the most efficient science-generating outfit in the world by any normalisation you would think of. That suggests there's a possibility of complacency, but there shouldn't be. So, actually, in terms of doing science, the UK is immensely efficient. In terms of our performance innovation, it's well known to you all. We're certainly uh, not a leader. But if you look at the some of the measurables that contribute to an innovation system, like the number of population graduating in STEM subjects, um, even the percentage of GDP available for venture capital, which is only a couple of percent and is small, actually it's not bad compared to other people. Uh, you look at the number of spin-out companies per federal dollar or US dollar from the UK, it's not that different to the US. It's, it's comparable, competitive. If you look at Imperial College versus MIT, the number of patents of spin-out companies we produce per dollar is broadly comparable. So there are many performance indicators innovation that look quite good, but it doesn't work as well. And we lag the leaders everywhere. I think what is clear that in terms of some of those performance metrics that are a function of government policies, it's quite good but the rest of the innovation system that gets best effect from this, and certainly going to be in terms of skills and other things, are probably letting us down. And that makes it difficult. In terms of business, the business environment in which we live, the UK, relative to our competitors, has a much smaller um, business expenditure on R&D than our principal leading innovative competitors. That reflects what we do. It reflects the structure of our economy rather than poor investment in aerospace or poor investment in pharma relative to other It's the structure of our economy. It's very biased towards things that don't have large R&D investments anywhere. As a consequence of that, when you get to the university sector, the amount of business research money going into the academics and to the universities is relatively low compared with our competitors. Imperial College is almost certainly the leader, but if you look at us versus MIT, yes, we're the leading in the UK, but actually 
compared with MIT or Georgia Tech, our business income is, is relatively small. That is a reflection of the structure of our economy, perhaps more than a government policy. So our lack of competitiveness in innovation is really a function of a more broader functioning of an innovation system rather than some of these rather easy to measure, much measured and much demonstrated points. I was asked to comment on government policies that have been successful and unsuccessful in my view. Now, it's very nice being outside government now because I can you know, basically say what I like and Labour aren't, in, you know, it's all much easier. But there have been some very successful policies in my view. Over a number of governments, well, certainly the last two governments, we've had pretty well a long-term support for research at the highest level and a concentration and a determination to produce excellence. That actually has worked. It's wobbled a bit the last year or two, as we know, but basically we're still performing well. A policy to try to fund research at full economic costs has worked enormously. It stopped universities going broke and over-investing in research and ultimately not having enough money to fix the roof. That's been a very good policy. There's been a superb low-cost policy over the last nearly decade, and that's a relatively small amount of money, a couple of hundred million, called the Higher Education Innovation Fund. It goes to all universities, depending on how good they are at working with business. That this has event been... is actually funded by them, I should make. Sorry? This event, the Growth Commission, is funded by them. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Need I say any more? Moving swiftly on. What it has done, it has basically paid for our university to set up technology transfer offices. Should it have happened anyway, it's cheap. Of course it should, but there's always other things to spend money on. So having some targeted money has actually been quite transformative. Other good policies... And um, there's a lot of alignment I have here now with John. I think trying to put money into areas closer to market, collaborating, bringing businesses, working with universities, and you know, driving growth in that area, have been successful policy-wise. So we have the Technology Strategy Board. We have a variety of mechanisms which we bring business together, stimulate um, growth and um, getting economic benefit out of research. The problem is exactly as John says. The quanta, the amount of money that can go in there, is not even in the same league as what a Fraunhofer Institute in Germany does, or actually the rather well-coordinated US government policies in this SBRI, Small Business Research Initiative thing. So the amount of money is actually too small, and it gets sprinkled around. Now, I'm not sure I agree totally with John. If you took the money that was there and plunked it in one place, you'd get one something. <laughs> you'd get a wonderful biomedical building or you'd get an advanced materials building, not much else. But there's a, there is really an underinvestment in that area. And it's very unlikely that anything other than government working with business are going to invest in, in that area. It's not, a, you can't, it's not a philanthropic area. It's not a pure business area. And I agree with John enormously on that. Other policies that have pushed um, universities to producing spin-out companies, I say actually our performance is high in terms of number of startups. We don't know what they do. Very few have grown to very large companies, and that is all a matter of either poor business models, which I suspect is really important, uh, 
or investment capital. There's a great tendency in universities for us to say it's a lack of investment capital. It might not be. It's maybe a business model that doesn't give the potential for that amount of growth. Policies that haven't worked very well. The picking winners policy over years has worked poorly. It's an inevitable consequence of not having enough money, so you actually have to place your bet somewhere, and I don't think that has served us terribly well. A bad policy, in my view, dates from 1994, when the creation of everything in higher education as a university removed a diversity from the higher education system, which has not served us well. We're now hoping that a, through a market mechanism, we will have a tier of universities that focus very hard on producing skills for the right sort of person, for the right sort of job, but we actually remove some of our capacity to do that as a result of the 1994. Um, so I think that was a bad policy. It remains to be seen whether a pure market approach to this, i.e. some universities shifting away from degrees that are not of very great vocational relevance, whether a market does work or whether government has, really has to provide some stimulus to make that happen. My <coughs> sense is that is rather an urgent requirement. I won't bang on about visa policies and this sort of thing, so, but you know all about that. Bridging the gap, last thing, you know, what actually can we do uh, of a, in a practical sense? And you know, what could happen in universities that would help in this regard. What would certainly happen in universities is policies that pushed universities even harder towards commercialization and focusing on things that result in growth. One of those is happening in the, this dreadful thing called REF, the, the Research uh, Evaluation Framework, Excellence Framework, where we're all assessed, now has impact statements. That is really focusing the mind where universities are going to be assessed on a retrospective view of what they've done in the past and what actually it's done. And this may be done in terms of societal benefit, which is what we want, or it may be in purely economic growth. That's pushing in the right direction. But I think universities are up for this, simply because there's no evidence that as we have become more commercially minded in, in uh, university, it has not impacted on the quality of our science. In fact, the two do seem to go quite well together. Student placements, putting our students in an environment where they can see business practice, innovation, commercialization at first hand is hugely important. I think all universities, certainly at Imperial, we're trying to do more in that regard. But actually, there is an opportunity for the government to stimulate that. Um, and it may not cost very much money too stimulated. I think if we had a great majority of students at places like Imperial spend a placement period in university, we would actually get some tangible benefit from it. Okay, I've just about um, finished. Let me just say one thing about clusters, of course, clusters was on, on the lift. I mean, if there's anything I really loathe, it's cluster theory. Uh, you know, I find it sort of arm-waving and you can't even get your arms around it. But what is clear, that if you see a cluster, you know one when you've got one. You, know, you certainly know what the Stanford cluster looks like. You know what the Cambridge phenomenon looks like. So when you've got one, you know what one looks like. 
And I think there's a lot more that can be done on that. And let me just say a little bit about, let's just think of London for, for the moment. Is London a cluster? Um, yeah, yeah, maybe. What does it really lack? Well, it lacks a lot of things. Actually, and I'll just take the, if you'll excuse me, let me just lapse back to Imperial. But we're probably as good as anybody at spinning out companies. We've got incubators on campus. Where do they go? Well, they sort of nowhere is the answer. So when they leave Imperial, some go to Oxford, some go to the Northeast, some go to Southampton. So we're missing some infrastructure things that promote some of that uh, development. The skills that are immediately uh, available, you would want, aren't there because actually the infrastructure isn't there. So we're trying to create a second campus in White City that will be doing just that, almost sort of Fraunhofer type uh, activity. But the potential for getting cluster type phenomena around higher education institutes is very real, particularly in the major conurbations. The question for me is, is there a central government policy that's going to make that happen? Oh, we'll have a cluster policy and we'll have, um, we'll up the skills and we'll put a bit more money into STEM, blah, 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 blah. Probably not. There are things you can do centrally, but I think things you do locally are going to be very important and probably the most important. And I'll give you, and I'll finish on a policy that had some good facets and some bad facets. That was the regional development authorities. What was good, well, what was bad about them? The amount of money that went around the country was inversely proportional to GDP per capita. So the money went to the northeast, the northwest, and uh, the southwest, and Scotland did its own thing. You can see some good outcomes in the northwest of some money thrown at bricks and mortar. Around Darsby, they built a business park, and there was a, a lot of growth on the back of that. The poor aspect of it is that where you'd got this immense concentration of intellectual resource and most of the population in the southeast, there wasn't any money. So one, you would, there was a disbenefit from that policy. But the good thing is, I think, if you view things on a regional basis, that is probably how you've got to deal with some of these problems. There isn't a central government policy that makes it easy to develop some of the infrastructure things we need in London. Um, but a more local policy with a benign mayor like Boris, who knows? Okay, that's me. Thanks you for inviting me. Uh, I'm going to start uh, by just uh, saying a few words about myself and my background. Uh, my name is Ayman Asfari. I'm uh, a group uh, chief executive of Petrofac. Uh, Petrofac is a, uh, the largest uh, oil and gas, uh, uh, UK oil and gas service provider uh, by market cap. Uh, we are uh, FTSE 55, 56. Uh, we listed the business uh, back in 2005. Uh, I effectively started the business with uh, some uh, uh, other engineers. I'm an engineer myself, so I'm very passionate about uh, science and engineering. And uh, we started in 1991 uh, with a million-dollar capital. Uh, the business over the last uh, 21 years has grown uh, to uh, almost $10 billion market cap. We have about uh, $5.5 billion uh, pound in market cap. Uh, we have uh, generated since listing about uh, 8x with no leverage, and uh, we're a dividend-paying uh, business. 
uh, we've grown from uh, four or five people to 15,000 over the last 21 years. And we employ uh, 5,000 professionals, 5,000 people in the, uh, in the UK, largely professional staff. Uh, we have uh, 4,000 employees in, uh, in Aberdeen and uh, just under 1,000 in the south, uh, southeast. So what I'm going to talk about, I'm, I'll talk in the end about uh, science and innovation, but really I want to uh, mention a few things which are very relevant to my own personal experience and why I thought uh, there are certain things that the government can do to promote growth. Uh, by the way, I think we are the, also the, the best performing FTSE 100 business in the last five or six years. This is just a, uh, a snapshot of what we do. We're in the business of... Uh, uh, developing uh, uh, oil and gas, uh, we do everything from, uh, we help basically resource holders, we do everything from subsurface analysis, asset management, field development, engineering, construction. Uh, we do our, we provide our services as discrete services or we, uh, we provide them as integrated offering through a business called IES, Integrated Energy Services. Uh, we're not an oil company, uh, our business is around leveraging our capability and our capability is basically our human capital. So uh, we, we live and die by the quality of our uh, engineering and uh, technical resources. Uh, we have one of the businesses we have is Petrofact Training, and uh, one of the things we, we pride ourselves in doing is uh, the quality of the training that we uh, deliver to our clients. We train about 50,000 delegates worldwide, and that's training anything between three days for emergency response or uh, survival training to go to the North Sea or to train for two years. So but we have 17 training centers around the world. Uh, UK presence, we have 4,500 people, uh, 4,500 in Aberdeen, 500 in, uh, in Woking, around 100 plus in, uh, in London. And uh, as a business, we probably spend about a billion pounds on, uh, on services uh, for the rest of our business because the rest of our business is international, but we buy from the UK. Uh, our revenue is about five billion pounds, about 20% of it is spent in the UK. Now, I came to this country in, uh, in 1991. Uh, my, my background, uh, uh, I was born in Syria, uh, educated in the US, I was born to uh, a father who was a diplomat. I lived in Turkey, lived in the Czech Republic. I went to school in the US, uh, went back from the US and worked in the Gulf. I started a business in the Gulf between Dubai and Oman construction business in the oil fields. And when I decided to start a business, I opted to come to this country. Uh, this was back in early 91, almost 21, 22 years ago. I think there are certain attractions in this country that are underestimated by people who live here and who've been here for a long time. Uh, for me, for instance, one of the greatest attractions here is the rule of law, which uh, is an incredible attraction. Uh, for someone who comes from the Middle East, even if you were to live in, uh, in a place in the Gulf which is stable, uh, but you could build a business and you could upset someone and find yourself outside the country in no time. Uh, we, when we decided to list in 20, 2005, we had a valuation for the business to list in London, which was X, and we had 1.5X at the time to list in Dubai, and we opted to list in London. And that was probably the best decision we made because of the transparency of the governance framework you have and of the fact that uh, you, know, you have a degree of liquidity. So you know, for me, uh, this is a, a very big attraction here that is underplayed, undersold. And we see a lot of people who come to this country today, they want stability, but what they do is they drive up the prices of property. 
So today, actually, I was reading in the FT as I was coming here that the prices in Chelsea and, and, uh, and Kensington, the average price has gone above a million pounds, which is the first time ever. Uh, so you've, you're seeing capital coming in to just drive up inflation and in, uh, in, in prices and not to promote growth in, in, uh, in the business. You know, everything else is, is uh, it, to me, what that was important is the geography, the, the help for financial and professional services that you need. You know, you can, and, and obviously you have the city of London in terms of the financial services and the, and the best law practices. But you also have, uh, for me, for us, when we started, we had a hub in the southeast with very good engineering talent that we can, uh, we can call on. Uh, the education system and everything else is, is, uh, is, is well known to everyone else, but really what I wanted to emphasize is the importance of some of the uh, uh, things that we absolutely take for granted here that for a lot of people from outside this country, they, they uh, truly value. So making a low return in a stable environment in many cases, in an environment which is welcoming, is by far more important than having to make a higher return and find yourself you know, uh, losing it all overnight. So, so to me, I think this whole idea that uh, the, the, uh, there is a lot of money that could come into this country to uh, promote enterprise, and, uh, and there's a, a lot that can be done in my mind that would uh, get this money to not only invest in, uh, in property, but invest in, uh, in creation of uh, jobs and in promoting employment and, uh, and in you know, enterprise as a whole. Uh, you know, uh, I've been talking to Italian friends the other day. They're coming to buy property. I mean, we're seeing Greeks coming in here. We've seen the Russians coming to this country. Why can't we get them to come in and bring their skills and talents and invest in jobs? There are a number of things that the, the government can do. For instance, if you come, if you're uh, a resident non-domiciled into this country, if you bring in income, you pay tax on it. I think the government can do a lot more to promote uh, enterprise by allowing people to bring in capital that uh, would be shielded from... Uh, 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 paying tax if it's invested to promote growth and so on, and I think uh, I was looking at the uh, numbers of uh, of uh, uh, applicants who come to this country in terms of under the entrepreneur's visa. They're really uh, uh, minuscule compared to the potential what can be done. The second uh, point I want to uh, talk about is infrastructure, and uh, I. Uh, Again, as someone who operates from, from here, this is our central hub, uh, and this is where our uh, corporate uh, services uh, headquarters is. Uh, we, uh, we're finding, I mean, I, I personally think that uh, over the last 20-some years I've been in, the, in this country and spending more than half my time traveling around, uh, this country is falling behind with the quality of the infrastructure. So, you know, it's, it's no good, for instance, uh, for the Prime Minister to say that we are going to focus on now the BRIC countries and him traveling to uh, KL and, and uh, Kuala Lumpur and Jakarta talking about promoting ties, when you actually cannot travel non-stop from here to KL. I mean, you can't travel on BA. You can't travel from here to Jakarta. You can't travel from here to Rio. I mean, these are the BRIC countries because there are not enough slots in, uh, in uh, Heathrow Airport. So if you have to go to uh, Jakarta, you have to go to Singapore on BA and then connect again. If you have to go to Malaysia, you have to either travel on Malaysian Airways, which is once a day, or you have to uh, go again to Singapore. And I've you know, compared just uh, uh, London to Dubai, 
London has uh, travels to 13 destinations in the Far East, and we're talking about these other destinations, which are high-growth destinations. From Dubai, you can travel to 30 destinations. Now, if you take the numbers of flights, and this is Dubai, which is a much, you know, if you look at the 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 cap the the the, the, uh, uh, the the GDP of Dubai compared to the UK or to to the Southeast. Uh, it's a fraction of it. If you look at the number of flights, it's even the, the, the numbers are much more. I mean, the number of flights from Dubai was something like 160, 170 to the Far East, and the number from London was about uh, 30, 40. So it's it's a it's a it's a vast difference between the two. And I mean, I'm just mentioning flights here, but you know, the quality of airports, the quality of the highways, everything else. And you just have to travel to to places like China or to uh, to Singapore or to other places that are growing very fast, and to see the quality of the infrastructure. I mean, actually, China for me, what has struck me over the the, the trips that I go on is not only the quality of the infrastructure in a place like uh, uh, Shanghai or Beijing, but traveling to smaller cities right now. They have first-class highways, excellent uh, airports, fantastic telecom systems. So. You know, I, I think uh, the whilst the country, whilst everyone is focusing on uh, on uh, reducing uh, spending, and I totally agree with uh, John about uh, cutting uh, uh, cost uh, in the in the bloated government. But I think there has to be a distinction between uh, between uh, that between current uh, expense and between investing in long term high quality infrastructure that will promote the UK. Uh, I mean, you know, things like uh, talked about here, the high-speed trains. I mean, it, by, by lots and lots of benchmarks, the UK is falling behind many places around the world. And, and the last point that I want to talk about is really the science and engineering, and that's been uh, critical to our past economic success. And uh, this is, frankly, an area where I, uh, I, I feel, again, we are uh, falling uh, behind in, in uh, many ways. Uh, you know, t today, uh, I mean, we appreciate the institutions like uh, Imperial, uh, and we do employ uh, graduates from Imperial. And in fact, we have a program with the Royal Academy of Engineers that we take them in, and they, they do, uh, 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 we finance their uh, master's uh, education. But increasingly, we can attract engineers from Indian Institutes of Technology, from the, some universities in the Middle East, and they are uh, just as good uh, in terms of raw engineering talent. I actually serve on the Board of Trustees of the American University of Beirut and uh, I've been involved in, in a number of engineering programs. And again, the quality of engineers that come out of that university, because we have a catchment area which is huge and we can select the very best talent to come into the engineering school. And it's a five-year program there, so it's much more, uh, uh, much more extensive than the you know, three years but the quality of the engineers that we, we take from there is also exceptional. So, but, but really, over the last uh, 20, 30 years, uh, I think there are two uh, points. I think, how do we encourage more people to join the technical profession? And uh, how do we create a national atmosphere or context where we can practice and flourish uh, within which innovation can take place and we can export the innovation? Uh, unfortunately, I mean, one of the things that uh, I find in, in this country when I came here is when you talk about somebody and his name, his, his profession is an engineer, you think of a plumber or a technician that comes in from BG to fix your heater. Seriously, it doesn't have the same connotation as, uh, as uh, uh, 
people in Germany or in the Middle East or in, in the Far East. I mean, the other thing is that uh, engineers, generally speaking, in this country, you, they still, their starting salaries is 20 to 30,000 pounds. Whereas if you graduate as an accountant and you go into the um, accounting profession, you probably start in the high 30s or 40,000 pounds. I mean, my, uh, I think there's a lot that can be done uh, to promote the uh, engineering as a profession. And uh, we need to do more to promote the image of the sector. We need to celebrate the success of British engineering. And we need to seek to rekindle the link to our heritage. Uh, and this will have to be uh, done uh, through supporting, uh, creating incentives uh, and opportunities for a bright and best uh, of experience that enjoy the challenge and rewards of engineering. Uh, Petrofac really is a story of engineers who have created a huge amount of wealth. I mean, I make a lot of money. And uh, the only uh, uh, main uh, talent I leveraged is my engineering technical skills, obviously later on in life are my managerial skills. But I can say that uh, without my technical knowledge, I would not have been able to uh, to lead the creation of a very successful enterprise. So I am actually uh, quite uh, passionate about what can be done with uh, with this uh, business and the role of, uh, of engineering and science. I just want to close on on one issue, which I'm, I'm really uh, also uh, uh, quite uh, uh, passionate about. Everyone in the UK, I mean, I'm obviously I come, uh, my, my business is the oil and gas business, so I know quite a bit about this uh, space. I'm not as, as uh, uh, much of an expert on other uh, areas. But, you know, the UK today, uh, we're finding it difficult to attract talent sometimes because there is this perception that the oil and gas is going to run out in the UK in 20, 30 years. So for a number of kids who come out of schools, they say, do we want to be in a profession where the resource is going to run out you know, before the end of our careers? And what we've been trying to, to say is, even if the resource runs out, and I believe personally that uh, with the new technology, the resource will, be, uh, will carry on for many years uh, beyond the, the uh, generation. But even if it were to run out, what uh, uh, we have in this country increasingly is a pool of talent that can be leveraged and that can create a tremendous amount of uh, value for the country long term by creating the services, building the technologies that can be leveraged to sell overseas. So the value of the sector today, in my mind, is moving away increasingly from the resource to the capability that has been built in this country. And this is where I, you know, I keep telling engineers to come in that, uh, you, you know, it's not around just uh, uh, extracting the resource. It's around leveraging the talent. And, it, and this is why, I mean, today in oil and gas, we have some of the best talent in the world that is in this country. And it was built around this industry, the, the oil and gas industry in, in, the, in the, uh, the UKCS and the UK Continental Shelf. Uh, I think uh, uh, there is something about promoting uh, uh, the building of talent and engineering around sectors where the UK has a leadership position because it's really not only about the education but it's also about the overall professional environment. It's about the regulatory system. It's around the standards that have been built. So coming back to the point of focus, you know, there are three or four areas in that the UK can focus on, like oil and gas, uh, pharma and biotech, aerospace. We can be leaders in some of these areas. We can't be leaders in everything. 
And uh, focusing on these areas would create the opportunity for people that to see that in engineering and in science they can have careers where they can prosper and they can uh, have careers where uh, uh, they will be at the uh, you know uh, doing some of the best stuff uh, around the world. This is really, I mean, it's the three things that I felt uh, are relevant to my own experience. I could, uh, the rest of it, I would, uh, I can talk about, but really, my my contribution would be totally undifferentiated. Thanks. Thank you for all three panelists for uh, really stimulating and very interesting uh, presentation. As I mentioned at the beginning, uh, John will have to leave us uh, uh, soon. So what I would uh, like to do now is just to make sure that everybody who is uh, questioned specifically motivated by John's presentation and they want to hear John's thoughts about um, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll collect those questions first uh, and give John a chance to answer those before he has to leave. And then we go back to the usual, usual format of, uh, of more open-ended questions for the panelists in general. So who, um, who, would, who would like to, uh, to start with the specific question for John? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I have a, a question for John, but actually I think it does overlap with some of the other presentations. I would be keen to hear what the other panelists have to say on this. So John, you, you identified... Um, this shortage of good business models. And actually we had a session on Monday which was about management and one of the people we had on was from Google which has a very specific kind of business model. And then there was a debate around the issue, well exactly how do you go about improving business models? Is it a case of improving the education system? Is it more MBAs? So I, I, I guess I'd like to push you a bit on how does one actually go about fixing that problem? Because I, I mean, you, you highlighted it, and I, you know, very consistently what we heard about in our management session about some of the issues around generally the quality of management and how you improve it, but much less obvious how you actually go about fixing it. So maybe you could you could do that, but I would actually also like to hear from the other panelists what their view is on improving the quality of business models, and particularly whether I mean, in your experience, there were particular issues around your business model and whether it was received or not. So things you can do. Um, first, a small part of the answer, but one that's definitely there. Anything that diminishes the regulatory burden on early stage businesses makes those business plans more likely to prosper and they'll get going easier. Pretty self-evident. The main thing is to improve the quality of the managerial resource. Now, there's two ways you can do that. One is you can make it more attractive for people to come in, which uh, I think was the subject of a good chunk of the previous presentation. And that means honouring people, um, giving them status, um, making sure that an engineer or um, somebody developing a company is somebody that's looked up to in the, pop in the um, population. Um, we need to make sure that people are rewarded and seen to be valued for their contribution. Then it's about the quality of the people that you, um, what you can do to improve the quality of the people, and that is education. Um, that's giving more general business education to more people. Uh, some MBA courses are going to do that well, some actually won't. Um, the uh, prestige of the typical UK <coughs> MBA has rather drifted over the years. Um, it would be nice to see them back to being world leaders again. When I was a lad in Manchester Business School, I was a world leader. No, it isn't. Um, we need to have some better business schools too. But beyond that, I haven't got a very good answer. Uh, a lot of it's about attitudes of enterprise, uh, about demand in the economy, and of course growth breeds growth. That's something which um, is very important. 
I mean, I agree with, uh, with uh, everything that John said. I, I think, to me, what I find is with the, with the building up businesses, there are lots and lots of uh, entrepreneurs in this country. And uh, there are lots of people with good business ideas. So, you, you know, somebody who uh, has a newspaper shop is an entrepreneur over there. It's the question of how do you go about from being an entrepreneur to building an institution, and how do you make that transition in the business? And uh, there are many people that have great ideas, but there are very few who can then translate that idea from an idea and a concept to a world-class business. And with all due respect to the private equity business and the venture capital business, the people that are in those businesses have financial backgrounds. They don't have, in many cases, industry background. I mean, I had 3i invest in Petrofac, and we talked about 3i. Back in 2002, they took 13% position in Petrofac. Uh, and the business was valued at $250 million, and they made six times the money. It was their best growth investment. They exited at the time of the IPPO. But 3i did not bring to me any business experience. In Petrofac, the growth that we've achieved in the last 20 years, we've achieved about 50% growth. It wasn't through financial gearing. It wasn't through financial engineering. It wasn't through smart structuring. It was through good operational performance and doing the right thing. And we have never had a gearing on our balance sheet. In fact, we closed the year with a billion and a half dollars surplus cash, and the city always talks about us having a lazy balance sheet and we should return money back to the shareholders. So the question in my mind is there is a big role for successful businessmen and entrepreneurs to act as mentors and to even come into the uh, venture capital industry and the private equity industry, because this is really what is lacking. What is lacking is this capacity to take someone with a great idea and guide him through and say, this is what you should do, this is the right strategy, you're lacking this in your team, this is, where you, what you can, this is the platform that you can build. And I find that in that space, to be honest with you, there's no one in the venture capital industries, there's no one in the private equity who is absolutely neither. It is in the U.S. we're seeing it right now. Some of the private equities and some of the venture capitalists, they are specialized. So there is two or three that are oil and gas. There are ex-oil and gas CEOs who come in and put together a, a, a fund, and they help bring around some of these enterprises. But we don't see it in this country. Most of the funds are generalists, and most of them are managed and owned by uh, people with uh, strictly financial background. Can I largely agree and then slightly disagree? I agree with all what you said, but I just want to give you the example of imperial innovations, and this is not just blowing the imperial trumpet. Yes, it is. <laughs> imperial innovations, um, I think one of its successes is not only having quite a lot of money in the bank, 150 million, so it can invest in second stage and larger companies, but from the inception of in in imperial innovations, it has taken on board this extremely important point that both of you raised, and that is how do you get you know, a spin-out company out of the head of the professor and the scientists, the inventors, into the professionalization of businesses. Part of their model from a very early stage is to get professionalism, business people in there, business engaged, managing the companies, um, to grow into a, a business-savvy world and create hopefully much better and more successful business models. Now we won't know probably for another decade how successful this has been, 
but the number of ones that have successfully gone to IPO so far is you know, really quite impressive. Now, I entirely agree we need vastly more of that, but there is one worked example in the university which has taken that on board and I think addressed it head on. I mean, I, I, I agree. So, I think, you know, it's a small part of it, but it's, it does mean your message is understood in some parts of this. Add one tiny thing, if I may. Um, cross my mind again. One thing we need to suppress is the entitlement culture, which you actually see in many early stage management teams in the UK, where they think they are, you know, entitled to money. Um, very common, um, particularly in um, places like Wales and Scotland, where there's a considerable excess of cash to availability. That needs to be uh, crushed out, because people who don't value money don't make money. Can I just follow up on, on this comment you, you, you've been doing? You hint, oh, I think all three of you hinted at the um, double-edged effect of the strength of the UK and London in particular as a financial centre. And the way you've hinted at it is in terms of what it does to suck talent into it and potentially make it harder to, uh, to channel talent to other, uh, other, other activities like engineering or film creation and so on and so forth. Um, so clearly that, that goes to this, this debate that we are having about the balancing of the economy in, in the UK. But, but it, is, it strikes me that there is another potential dimension here, and I wanted to get your reaction on that. Is it possible that the strength of the UK as a financial center also influences the way business education is done in the UK, and uh, in particular in terms of uh, an emphasis on, on financial skills. I'm thinking about in the UK you have places like HBS, which is very much, as, as I understand, of course it has finance, finance component to its curriculum, but I think it's really, it's, it's core business is, is entrepreneurs and, and entrepreneurship uh, um, as a as sort of the, the, kind of the, the core product of the, of the school. Do we have, do we have a, a, a lack of that in, in the UK in terms of both business school and perhaps even undergraduate education? Can I, can I just say something? I, I honestly do not think it's a question of education. I think the, uh, the raw talent that we get when we get it is good talent. I mean, engineers that come out of uh, Imperial or any of the uh, engineering schools, we don't have a problem with. I think the, the problem that we have in this country, frankly, is, uh, and I'll be, you know, very blunt because I can, I have a very stark comparison between that and, you know, a different world, even though I'm, I've been British for, for 16 years. But I think we have lost the, uh, a lot of the values that we have for the importance of work and the importance of hard work. I mean, I, I keep talking about this and I'm, this, it sounds like a father saying the broken record for his kids, but I, this is, I have my focus. Seriously, we've lost it. So, for instance, I mean, my four children, I have four, I have 27 who's doing an MBA, and then 25 and seven, 17 twins. Uh, I, when I talk to them about their careers, they grew up in this country, all of them, they were born here, they grew up in this country, and they have been accustomed to a life where now we take a lot of things for granted. Young kids who come out of engineering schools, when they have a choice, do I work in the city and I uh, can go to clubbing and I can see my girlfriend, or do I join the oil and gas industry and assign to work on a platform in Angola? And go there. <laughs> Seriously, these are the choices. These are the choices. Mm -hmm. What do you do? Now, 
30 years ago, 20 or 30 years ago, it was absolutely uh, wonderful to take a career where you travel overseas, you learn, you toughen up, you gain, the, uh, you gain uh, experience, and then you come back and you're a better person. For the life of me, I can't convince kids today to come into our profession because our profession is hard. You know, we have to uh, send people to gain experience. You don't have one in Gaza, well, it has to be either in the North Sea or it has to be overseas, traveling to very difficult places. Now, that makes it it's particularly hard when you can go as a kid and you can work in the city and at 26 make half a million pounds. It's impossible. So I think this whole compensation structure in the city is, is absolutely damaging in my mind. I mean, I hate to say this, but I mean, it's damaging any potential for, uh, uh, for bright talent to come into industries because it's, it's unreal. You know, you can play behind the screen, uh, make a few things, make some money, make half a million pounds, you blow it all away three years later, you get sacked, you start again with a different institution. So it's... And against that environment, how can we attract the very best talent to come in instead of going and working for, for hedge funders? So we're finding ourselves now attracting engineers from Azerbaijan, from Kazakhstan, from India, from Russia, from Egypt, from places that value this. They say, we're going to send you off to Angola. And they say, wow, fantastic. We're going to gain experience. This is great. We can't do it here anymore. Well, just to give a slight counter to that, I mean... Yes, everything you say says that we are sucking our best talent into the relatively unattractive financial services sector for the economy. But of course, short term, the financial services sector might generate the growth. And that's the issue. The trouble is it's a very vulnerable growth. Uh, we've seen over the last few years how quickly that can come to a grinding halt. And it just makes for a dangerous economy if we have too large a segment of it, the financial services sector. But, but, but it goes back, I mean, other than financial services, it goes back to our value system. And I hate to say this, but we can't grow the economy when we don't want to work hard. Yeah. Uh, and it, it is very interesting to note that if you look at the working week across Europe and, and lay it against the growth rates, there's quite a correlation. Absolutely. I don't think I've got anything to disagree with, but I, I'll just give you a perspective of you know, somebody that has the uh, working every day with young people around and probably in a place that is bigger in engineering than, than anywhere else. Just give a few observations. I think kids that come to Imperial, boys and girls, actually to do engineering, actually are motivated by engineering when they arrive. More than half of them are from outside the UK because the growth in appetite for engineering amongst UK students hasn't changed in the last decade. So in electrical engineering, <coughs> 70% or more from outside the UK. But I have no doubt when they come, they're motivated by engineering. They're very pragmatic and they're very focused, certainly relative to my generation that I thought go to Angola or Canada <coughs> Center was the, the bee's knees. It was. However, the reality is, as they look at employment opportunities, you know, as you said before, where the starting salaries are for engineers, if you get a job, relative to the city, are hugely different. Engineers are very numerate, they're skillful, they fix problems, their mental training is to take complex problems and find a way through. So intellectually, they're very well geared to the city. Half of our engineers go to the, go to the city. Whether it's a, you know, a sort of easy option or whatever, yeah, I'm less sure because I think they come very committed, but ultimately, pragmatically, they will go where the jobs are, where the career opportunity. But, 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 but I, I but think it's the two things: it's the salaries, and it's also the quality of life that you can have. Yeah. And the kids that come out of universities here, 
when they are given a choice where you can get earn more money and stay here in, in London or travel yeah. and in, and then you don't choose to come. I mean, we know that uh, when we go and try to hire from universities, we lose the best talent. Whenever we lose somebody, we lose him to the city. Okay, let's, let's, uh, let's get uh, John and maybe someone from the public also to, to ask questions for John. That, that Yes, I know John has to go. So um, I, I completely agree. I mean, this has come out of a lot of the sessions we've had about uh, one of the, the barriers to growth uh, from a firm point of view is not just getting the entrepreneurs, but scaling those up. I mean, the, uh, you know, we, have a, we have a problem of getting good firms to be sufficiently large to be world, world leaders in this country. And I wanted to push John a bit more on what, if anything, can be done about that. So you certainly said, you made your views very clear, you think one of the problems with it is too much, too big a state. Mm. We could shrink the state, get the state out of the sunshine and mm. allow those, those, those businesses to grow and flourish. I, I mean, I'm not so convinced um, that there is any magic number about the size of the state. I mean, the studies I've seen, there isn't a magic, you know, you have very successful <laughs> Uh, growing countries which have really st large state interventions like Scandinavia and also big failures like you know, uh, you know Greece and, and, and the, in Eastern Europe. So I think it's more what you do with the money rather than the amount of money that, that the state spends. So is there, so the question is you know is there a role? I mean of course the recent experience is that there has been a lot of cutbacks in state expenditure, but it's been on investments rather than the kind of stuff you're worried about, some kind of welfare and other things. So my, my question really is, you know, is there anything the state can do in a more positive way to encourage that process of reallocation of resources towards better firms? I mean, infrastructure was mentioned by AMAN. I mean, this seems to be certainly one way that you could make an investments to improve things. Maybe there's other forms of ways of... So you were very sceptical about, the, the, interestingly, the capital side. You know, that doesn't seem to be the what you were saying was the main thing. What is there then? I mean, you know, what, what, are, what are the potential? John, before you answer, I want to give a, since I think this is going to be your last chance to talk, so <laughs> let me give a chance um, to anyone in the public who has questions for you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to see if you could elaborate a little, yes, okay, Tara Alice from Biz. I wanted to see if you could elaborate a little bit, and perhaps other panelists as well, on this issue about penny packets versus kind of more scaled up investments in specific areas. And in particular, you know, where, where's the evidence? Uh, it intuitively feels right that, you know, rather than drops in the ocean, if we pull them all up and, you know, have slightly bigger investments, that would make more of an impact. But I'm not sure I've seen the evidence. I was thinking about the biotechnology sector, which I think John uh, knows about, that here's a sector which has been the focus of government attention since the end of the 70s. No lack of focus on the part of government. Successive governments have seen biotech as a big growth sector which should be encouraged. Lots of venture capital activity, lots of companies getting quoted on, uh, getting quoted either on the main market or, or, or on AIM. End result, a bit disappointing <laughs> in the sense that no British company has really made it to, to sort of Amgen or Genentech type of status. I suppose the question in my mind is, is one, do we mind? Does it matter? Secondly, and perhaps more sort of constructively, is the fact that the results have been so disappointing something to do with uh, 
failures in management, weak management? Is it something to do with weaknesses in the financial system? Is it because the government hasn't spent enough money? I think these are, I don't know what the answers to those questions are, but I think it's quite an interesting case where you can't complain that the government hasn't taken biotech seriously. Maybe it's taken too, taken too seriously and put too much effort into it when um, it's not perhaps a very promising sector. This, uh, Steve Westlake from Nesto, this is really just a build on Tara's question. I think we heard a lot about the importance of focus and not sprinkling money around, but at the same time, the suspicion of that kind of famous thing that we're very afraid of in Britain, picking winners. And I guess the question is, how do we strike that balance? Government has been agonising over this for decades. If we are focused, how do we make that decision? Probably about the last. Right, state expenditure. Um, I think the overwhelming evidence is there for when you get to 50% state expenditure, the growth really slows down pretty well absolutely everywhere. The Afonso paper, 2008, if you haven't uh, gone through it, go through it. It's pretty comprehensive. I disagree, but... Okay, fair enough. I read it last night, it seemed to say that. Um, the I agree government, with the government, government expenditure on infrastructure, absolutely with, uh, I mean, you know, things like Heathrow are just bloody ludicrous. We need more aviation capacity in the UK and we need to get on with it. But one of the things that it illustrates is the incredible slowness of our systems here. I mean, you can build an airport if you want to in three or four years. You do not need to spend 15 or 20 years over the agonising and process of putting it together. So that's about pacing government, uh, because it's not just spending the money. Spending the money doesn't generate the growth. It's getting it done quickly, getting it all interconnected. Um, penny packets, prove it, very difficult. Uh, I can tell you I've seen it fail so many bloody times that watching quarter million, half a million quid slung at three academics who haven't got a clue how to run a business fails, I promise you, is you know, as established to me as my own pulse. Um, <laughs> I don't think I need that. In terms of the penny packet versus larger startup, there is some evidence in the US, particularly at, uh, from some stuff at MIT, that larger funded startups do better. US startups actually consume more capital on average than the UK. I haven't seen this for about three years, but it's quite a big difference. Um, so, and the success rate is definitely higher. So there is some evidence that larger is better. Um, picking winners, I mean, that's a standard sort of British habit. We don't do it, dare we? Um, well, I think we have to take a decision. We can only do a few sectors. We can't globally dominate. We're a small nation in population and geography. Um, we are doomed to do it. Um, some of the segments that are on the board um, from Mr. Fari were really dead right. Uh, we need to focus on those, um, and we need to do it quickly. Um, yes, you can overdo it. Of course you can. Um, the word cluster, I share the same. It's one of these words like entitlement and diversity, which fear, fill me with fear because <laughs> they don't mean anything. Um, but we do need to have some concentrations of excellence. And if we have four or five areas of excellence and two or three of them work, that would be a pretty bloody good outcome. Uh, biotech, um, well, we've had a few. I mean, I did the startup of Shire a few years ago, which has been moderately successful, but it hasn't been the success everybody hoped for in biotech. Um, that's been a mass of different things, not largely because most of them were sold out to foreign big pharma. I think that's a big chunk of why the companies didn't grow here. 
And of course, pharma is an industry which is pretty well just coming off the peak in the UK. One of our strongest, uh, strongest industries, but in gross employment and exports, its numbers are starting to drift down as they're finding the thing, th things that were being talked about. They can find the scientists, the research cheaper, and in some cases better overseas. That's an area to be worried about. I don't have a magic answer for it, and I don't think there is one. That I'll leave you. Can I just say something about picking the winners? Yeah, why don't we have, yeah, we yeah, I mean, just picking the winners. I mean, in, in business, most businesses, they ultimately, they look at where can they be having a leading position, and then you decide that you're going to not be uh, in, a, in a, another business. I mean, in what we do, we have decided this year we're going to exit from a certain business because we're not going to have a leading position, we're, our offering is going to be undifferentiated, it's going to be commodified. So it's not very difficult to look at the industries in the UK and say, what are the industries where we can have a leading position? And just focus on these industries uh, and, and make sure that these industries are best. Because at the end of the day, if you're going to win in anything, you can only win if you are the best or if you are amongst the best. You can't win if you are just anybody. So, uh, uh, and, I, and I think it's very easy. I mean, the UK, uh, the UK has a fantastic uh, aerospace uh, industry, you know, coming back to engineering. I think we have an exceptional oil and gas industry. I think that the pharma industry should be continuously promoted, whether high tech is in it or not. There are certain aspects. I mean, there is an investment in the UK in, in, in uh, renewables, for instance. Can that be leveraged to become uh, the offshore wind, the uh, leading industry? Uh, some areas in IT and, uh, and technology as well, uh, the UK has been leading. But uh, but in many other areas, in my mind, uh, that, and these these are the industries that should be that should be promoted. Okay, so can I just sort of push you a bit on that. Though? A good example where we may have been very pessimistic a few years ago would be automotive, where people would have said the British car industry is essentially a basket case. The quicker we get out of producing cars, the better. But actually, it's rebounded, and you could argue now it's a sector where we should be actually investing. So that's a classic example where wherever you picked the point in the cycle, you might have reached a very different view. Or, or do you disagree with that? Do you think it was always obvious that Britain's car industry would rebound and that we'd become you know, now a net exporter? I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not uh, necessarily uh, saying, I mean, the, the car industry, what you're talking about is the case with the Land Rover, Range Rover and Jaguar. I mean, the, these, and it's the high end. Uh, uh, you're talking about Nissan, you're talking yeah. about Nissan, Toyota. Yeah, yeah. Across across the board, you could say, you know, we, we now look like a credible automotive power. I mean, you know, there's been a government support, but you know, it's not all about government support. Well, I mean, uh, I'm not necessarily saying that we're going to have to shut down the automotive industry. I mean, maybe that's another industry where the UK has a competitive advantage and it should continue to promote. But, but I think that's, that's, I mean, I want to uh, follow up on the because I think that's, that's exactly the point. I mean, it's a little like finance. When, when the government starts, Focusing its energies and its support on, on, a, on a, a few picked industries, you don't like that just a neg benign neglect for other industries. That's really an active disadvantage for the other industries because you know it brings up the costs, it, it sucks up uh, talent out of these industries, capital out of these industries, and so you're not only choosing to help some industries, you're also actively hurting some others. And so this idea that <coughs> you can come in and say, okay, these are the ones. We're going to go for it, and we know which ones are which for. I think, you know, to me, it's, it's kind of very scary. If, if I, I think there are two parts to this question. One is 
where the public purse should actually put money, taxpayers' money invested in industry. That's one part of the policy. The other, which actually has been rather successful, doesn't cost money, and that is policies about inward investment. And I think some of the successes that we've seen in automotive is a policy of welcoming, promoting, and working hard at inward investment. And this requires quite a lot of civil servants and foreign office and so on. But the development of the automotive industry is basically, from a long time ago, welcoming Toyota, welcoming this, making the entry of Tata into the UK, and still making it as well. I mean, it's, over, it's inward investment. Inward investment in aerospace is large. Now, we think very much of our domestic industry, but Airbus is an overseas company that has invested heavily in wing manufacturing, in composite centers, um, and so on. So the inward investment policy has promoted sectors. It's an instrument of policy, but it's not actually where you put the great gobs of money. Going back to great gobs of money, there are people from Biz here. My bet is if you look back over the last 20 years, if you look where the money's gone, it will have gone in peaks, certainly in aerospace, because defence put a load of research money to that. I think you'll probably find aerospace, pharma, and auto, you know, automotive are probably areas where money has gone. So there is, I think, still has been something of picking winners in where you invest. But I think the other side of the policy has been very successful. If I look at where business invests in research at Imperial College, they're exactly the sectors that Heyman uh, put on there. You, you put on the screen. Basically, the oil and gas industry, the aerospace industry are probably the two biggest sources of uh, business income. So actually, what we do in university does actually reflect the engineering strengths of our economy. The reason we're pushing I'm a bit not putting any way forward yeah. there. I'm just giving you a sort of I think it's a very central issue for our commission how far we can we get into the, you know, where, where we come down. I think a lot of people will be looking for where we come down on the whole question of thinking about. It. So it's a very central topic. So so it's not. Can I comment on these penny packets? Yes. Um, I, there are some good examples of where sprinkling money around has been done to rather minimal effect relative to our competitors. And one of the you know, well-documented ones was with the rise of nanotechnology, nanoscience, and nano-everything. And um, the UK was behind the curve. The US was well ahead of us. And it sprinkled money all over the place. And the RDAs, which I, as I've already commented on, on those, but actually they were sprinkling money around. You know, we must have a nano-centre. And what the UK managed to do was not really achieve a real critical mass in any of these places. And we got less out of that investment than, than our competitors that actually placed their bets in, in, in one or two places. And, and there are others of, of spreading spreading the penny packets too. Okay, Tim and then John, and then we... Yeah, can I come back? I mean, quite rightly flagged up issues that if we'd been here 30 years ago, I think we would also flag up transport, energy, communications. UK, we know, is lagged behind. At our very first Growth Commission session, um, Steve, Steve Nichol said, you know, in, in sort of what should the Commission do? You know, we've had all sorts of reports. Take transport, we've had an Eddington report. Everyone said when it came out, what a fantastic report it was, how it identified a lot of the issues. But nothing seems to happen 
when we have these reports, and maybe the fate of our growth commission report, but that's <laughs> not. The, fa the, fact, the fact is, so, so I, I'm not inviting you to sort of speculate on British political economy, but there is a sense in which, now for generations, issues which have seemed transparently clear to people in business have not had, have not been addressed by government. Do you have any advice or sense of how we... I think the made about uh, national infrastructure in transport, internet speed, and so on, is the single most important issue that comes up in this yes. and how, how, I, I, I didn't mention it in my side, but it's on there. I think the systemic failure of government after government after government to do the obvious and, you know, have a competitive infrastructure of which all of what we're talking about is going to depend on is a massive failure of the UK. So how do you and what's more, so, so much of it is potentially available with private money. Mm -hmm. So yeah. how, how do we go about addressing this then? Well, how, how do you address it? Well, you can highlight the point. You know, um, there many people have already. The, the, I did the sclerosis in the UK political system is, is one, planning, is two, uh, lack of political guts. I mean, you know, we could talk about Heathrow for four or five generations. We could talk about the Thames estuary for four or five generations. Um, whereas China won't have had a conversation at all and put up the equivalent of Terminal 5 in three years. Now, there's got to be a political balance and um, balls, really, in, pol in politics, and it's just been lacking in, in the UK system, and is as much lacking in this coalition uh, I, I, as it's ever lacked. I, I totally agree. I, I think, the, uh, frankly, the problem with this government, ever since we had the coalition government, they, and they started talking about austerity. Austerity, in their mind, included also cuts on infrastructure and cuts in expenditure in fixed assets in the country. So, in my mind, there is a, there is a difference between you know the Congo schemes that we have and some of the money which is being spent on current income and investing in infrastructure. This government did not talk about infrastructure. So, putting aside the the fact that we have all the other issues that stops it, it was actually not on the card. So the last two years, nobody was talking about investing in the UK. It was all about cutting, 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 and austerity measures. And I, in my mind, uh, uh, you know, you, they needed to have, they needed to separate between the two, and we needed to continue to invest in a stimulus in uh, creating assets in this space. But I come back to the point about the the political process. Uh, I mean, it is very frustrating for somebody like me to think that I will finish my career and Heathrow will not be expanded. <laughs> Seriously. No, I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, I have to, you know, it's no longer a big issue for me because I have my own plane, but, uh, but that's not, <laughs> that's not available for 99.99% of the, uh, of the uh, public. But uh, it is a fact. It's a fact. I mean, people can't, uh, and, and we see the UK, how it's falling behind, and you see how uh, many places around the world are, uh, are building their, uh, Infrastructure. So coming back to this uh, political will, uh, the coalition government certainly uh, does not have the, the political will to push through some of the very difficult uh, projects that have to be built. And I think where the money is being spent is not uh, necessarily where you will uh, get uh, best value for money. So. John? I mean, I mean this, is, this is a very important conversation. I hate to move it on to some other things. I mean, I, let me let me say something last related to that, and then we'll push on to something Keith said. So, this importance of uh, transport, international transport, 
getting you, you need, the visa thing is a huge thing I imagine one of the huge failings at the moment is difficulty of people getting visas to business people get visas to come here. if you want to avoid the rant keep up yeah same. exactly <laughs> um, but do you think this is becoming more so people often talk about you know face to face communication being less important because you know we can do Skype and we can do other things but my sense and I, I want to get Alman's view on this is that you know, Britain does have a lot of service sector and in fact, in, in the service sector in particular, face-to-face interaction and business is more important rather than less important. So this ability to do international travel is actually going to become increasingly rather than, than, than less important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, uh, I would never do a business with someone without seeing them and you know, pressing the flesh and meeting the person. Because at the end of the day, uh, you know, contracts are as good as the people who are signing them. And you want to sign a contract, but you want to never have to look at it. You want to know that the people behind it are going to honor it. Uh, you know, and I've learned in 31, 32 years of business, uh, if, you, uh, if you, you know, do not trust the person you're doing business with, no matter whether you're doing a big business or a small business, uh, Somebody I used to work with, he was our chairman, used to say, "You can't do good business with bad people," which is very true. Uh, so you know, and you can't communicate in terms of establishing uh, their value system. Uh, are they going to sign a contract and then come back and uh, and uh, try to uh, to rescind it? Uh, so I, it's extremely essential. Good, I, mean, I spend I spend really literally 60% of my time traveling and I find that I would not be able to do international business without spending a lot of time talking to our clients and our partners around the world. So, so, yes, so I just want to press Keith on this other issue which is a key, I mean it's a long-standing key issue of the UK economy as you said. We seem to be great at the invention, the discovery, but crap at <laughs> getting those into commercializable innovations and you said well you know, look at what the US is doing in SBIR, look at what Germany does in the Frank Howard Institutes. We need to do that, and the only problem is we're not doing spending enough money on it. But could you could you elaborate more, I mean, on you know what exactly is there anything exact yeah. what exactly are the things that those institutes do yeah. that I mean, we should be doing more of? Yeah. Because I, it, it's a bit too vague to say spend more money on it. Can yeah. we target this a bit more yeah. to actually... I've accepted your polarisation, we've got a research and crap. It's, it's, it's not... It, it makes <laughs> I, I'm aware it's a crude. It's yeah. a crude. <laughs> okay. um, because actually, you know, we're not that dire. Um, but the reality is, um, there, we've talked about the sort of professionalism that is needed in businesses that are, are starting up. We've already talked about... Uh, the investment and intensity of investment available. And I don't think there's any doubt that when we compare ourselves with the US, there is more money put at risk in these businesses than we manage. But what can we do? I mean, it's very easy to sort of say, well, the government has got to do this with the public purse. And I think, pragmatically, we've got to find things we can do that are not a heavy draw on, on the public purse. So, how do we get more investment into this space, which, let me just call it the Fraunhofer space. I actually don't like Fraunhofer Institutes very much, but, you know, they are huge business government investments in Germany in this translational space, engaging business, and I get a lot of them which will stand with the rest of it. 
you know, build up through those. How do we occupy that space in a rapid and affordable way? Well, I think it's an area where we can bring in a lot of private money. I think that you know, businesses are not poor. You know, we live in a country that is is global. I think there's a, a bigger role for universities to play. Um, I think the scope to build, you know, innovation campuses and which bring businesses together and so on. I'll give you now. I mean, we've got to do this at Imperial, and we're finding there is a lot of private capital around. Um, the government is running a scheme at the moment where they're prepared now, maybe a penny packet, but they're putting up 100 million of capital to universities on the basis that they can leave that two to one from the private sector. Doesn't look that difficult. So there, you can get money into this space with quite inexpensive policies, and I think the universities are up for it. The other thing is skills, and I find the skills thing really very difficult. Because it's clear the more skills you've got around, the more skilled your workforce in every place, the more likely you are to be innovative in what, in what you do. But then again, different sectors need different sorts of skills. And they're very expensive to produce. They're expensive for a company. Maybe your company can invest quite a lot in generating people at once. An SME probably can't put very much money into, into skills. So I think we've got to find a way of skilling, reskilling, and skilling people who are already in employment with you and coming back at a much more affordable way. Now, this is, this is not a well-thought-through solution, but I think if we're going to do this in an affordable way, we've probably got to make much bigger use of e-learning than we are at the moment in e-based courses. You can see the higher education system beginning to move, free courses from MIT and, and so on. I think we've got to again look for things that have a low investment cost and easy for people's time uh, to be able to respond to this skills market. I don't have a well thought through policy there, but I don't think we can adopt in a policy that somehow the government just pay for more and more people or businesses do. Pragmatically, there is things we could do, but we've actually got to reduce the costs of some of that skill provision. Can I, can, I, can I say, I have, uh, I have well, two experiences uh, with this. We bought a business which was a spin-off from Cranfield University called Caltech. And it's part of Petrified today. Uh, we spent, we paid 20-some million pounds for it. They had innovative technology with compact separation and booster pumping. I mean, just technologies that we like. And uh, we've, uh, the business was started by a number of scientists, uh, couple of them were university professors. And I have personally invested in a business which is a spin-off also, came out of Aberdeen University, which is called Gas2, that uh, has membrane technology to convert gas into liquids, and it's for micro-GTL, micro-gas-to-liquid uh, plants. Now, my experience with these is they always, always cost you a lot more to do and take a lot longer <laughs> to get them. So, whilst the potential for a lot of these is fantastic, but by the time you actually can generate a financial return from the business, you find that uh, all the, uh, the projections from any, uh, any of these businesses, and I've seen like another 20 or 30, but these two we've invested in, one through Petrified and now one person, uh, it just takes a lot longer. And I'm not going to 
compared to what? A lot longer to, to actually start making money because, I mean, for instance, you know, you guys do, you start and you, 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 you start with a theory, then you build a, a lab model, then you want to build a, a first pilot, then you want to build an industrial size plant, and then, you know, nobody will support you to put the industrial before the pilot works, and then the industrial. You have to find the capital for it. So we started initially with Gas2, thinking that we would start making money after investing, you know, seven or eight million pounds. We're up to twenty-five million pounds, and we've had to scratch around for money. And it still uh, requires a lot more spending before you can actually uh, get to a stage where it can be successfully deployed. So the lead time to a lot of these businesses is, is a lot longer than people project particularly if you are in an industries that are quite conservative. The oil and gas industry is a very conservative industry. The pharma industry, similarly, I mean, the lead time to getting a drug to the people, is it, it's a, it takes a long time for that to uh, to go from R&D, pure R&D, to getting commercial deployment and generating funds. And I come back to the point that John mentioned. There isn't really a good venture capital industry in the UK that has the resources and the patience to back these industries and take them to commercial deployment. There are lots of ideas, lots of concepts, but the the, 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 the the distance between the concept and the ideas to making a flourishing business is, is you know, is in many cases up to 10 years minimum. And you require to, you have to have a lot of capital put in behind these businesses in the meantime. Plus you come back to the question of the skilling and question of the uh, support, not only the technical support, but the managerial and the commercial support with with industry experts who can come into these businesses and help them, help shape them, help create the right platform, help pulling them out uh, around the world. And and I and I find that uh, actually many of the uh, uh, venture capitalists <coughs> and the private equity funds they'd rather invest in tried and tested business models that are mundane, you know simple to understand, where they can see where the market is, even if it means they will make you know, 2x after seven or eight years, then invest in a technology business that's going to take 10 years, has the potential to make 20 or 30x, but you can never put your finger on how long it's going to take, what difficulties you find along uh, the way. You might find that one thing in the technology is not working, you're going to go back to the lab and you're going to have to work. Uh, so you need to have a much longer wavelength and you need to be very patient and you need to have a different set of investors that come in. And unfortunately, we don't have these investors in the UK. We don't have, we don't have the depth. I mean, we have investors, but we don't have the depth of capital and the depth, the pool of, uh, of resources that backs these businesses as effectively as places like the US. Okay. And this is absolutely true. If you look at the history of academic spin-outs, many, many are successful, but very few, I mean, many you know, bail out at 100 million. I mean, there's ones from Imperial that Pfizer bought other farm. I mean, there's a satisfaction with getting them gobbled up at 100 million rather than sticking with them for another five or seven years. So just, just to summarize, so you, you're, so you are saying there is this problem of patience capital in, in the UK, which is, has, has the longer time horizon. It's the preparedness to risk much larger sums of capital over a longer period of time. Right. I, with, 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 of course, the gamble being you get a very big return on a very small number of uh, investments, ultimately, out of a big pool of startups. Are you the view that it's a problem? So one view is that it's, a, it's quite a viable strategy for the UK to 
start off with business, they grow to a certain size, they get gobbled up by a bigger company, and you know we still get the benef- some of the benefits from that in terms of you know the the, 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 the value of the buyout, the, the workers still get high wages, the people who innovate get some payout. You know that's the kind of you know we don't like the uh, car manufacturing industry. You know, we, don't, we don't apart from the very high high tech McLaren ends, we don't ourselves have these kind of multinational companies generally based in the UK, but other multinationals come here. Is that a problem for the UK? I mean, is that well, another, is the, Wimbledon, the Wimbledon model? Is there's that, a positive uh, side to it, isn't there? I mean, given the money that the public, the government invests in research, it obviously wants to see that knowledge become available to the economy, for the benefits of society, to grow the economy. So, if you have, you know, what we do in the UK, I think, certainly what MIT and Stanford do, actually produce quite a large number of startups. <coughs> some will fail, some will get gobbled up early on. But actually, you are putting knowledge into the economy, you are creating some jobs, and you are creating some, some returns. So that's not a, necessarily an all-negative thing, even though in the UK we haven't yet grown a, a big company. But I completely agree you know, with what's being said on this, I mean, it is a very visible failure that we haven't got a, a, you know, investors in the UK that would do what they do in Massachusetts or in Silicon Valley and invest at higher risk with larger quanta for a longer period of time and ultimately make their big money out of a, a relatively small number <laughs> of a large number of startups. So we, we, in many ways, we got the bedrock not bad, notwithstanding professionalisation, you know. We are performing, but it's very visible that we haven't got that extra push. And it, it's, you know, it's it's hard to see how government, you know, how you get government policy make that that work. You, you, you know, it's naive to think that it's government money you try to use. Um, it's how one can mobilise. Yeah, I mean, I. Sorry, you had a point, you know. Basically, w- w- welcome overseas people here to buy their house in Chelsea and put some. <laughs> I'm looking at the clock, and I, I realize we haven't heard uh, enough from from the from the public here. So I want to um, open open the floor to the private. Hi, uh, I'm Mark Thanks, the uh, Head of Knowledge and Innovation Analysis at uh, Biz. Uh, thanks for uh, what for me has been, uh, been a fascinating discussion. If I may, uh, I'll just offer one observation and uh, then ask a question. Uh, the observation is actually not based on my current role, which I've only been in for two and a half weeks, but uh, my previous job where I was, uh, I was in migration for five years and responsible for a body known as the Migration Advisory Committee, which was responsible for the UK's official list of shortage occupations. And going back to the previous discussion about that, uh, the most represented sector on that list was the engineering sector in terms of job titles, including in the oil and gas industry, but in in a range of other engineering jobs as well. And the issues discussed are people um, not entering into STEM subjects and those who do study STEM subjects then going off to work in other sectors due to the relatively low pay is is well recognised to me. And speaking to uh, employers in that sector, a common response to the question of why don't you just pay them more was that uh, UK engineering firms are competing on global markets and if they raise the salaries they would become uncompetitive. 
Uh, and so it's quite difficult to see how you will resolve that, but, uh, but I'd be interested in any observations on it, but I just really wanted to offer that observation. Uh, the question uh, relates uh, to what I'm doing now, and, uh, and I think there's general agreement that, uh, that science and innovation is important for economic growth, but there hasn't been a great deal of discussion about how that is mediated, uh, particularly through the labour market. Would we expect investment in science and innovation to, uh, or, or you know, successful science and innovation policy, to create more jobs in the UK, or would we expect it to boost productivity but not create jobs? And indeed, what is the balance between those two things? Uh, I'd be quite interested to understand uh, understand what the relative importance of those factors are, because it could have uh, implications for policymakers. Great. Let's collect a couple more questions here. Yeah. This is a question of what can government do. I think you mentioned the Technology Strategy Board as one um, element in the government's armour. And some people have argued that the Technology Strategy Board should be given a large amount of more resources. Why should one think that the Technology Strategy Board can predict which sectors are going to be successful in 10, 15, 20 years' time. I don't understand that. I mean, it's one thing for Petrofac to say, okay, we're going to exit this business and enter a new one on, a, on a, what kind of give a reasonable return and so on. But I, I just think it was a danger of, of, um, uh, of, of exaggerating the, the um, foresight capabilities of, of government agencies and, and uh, and I think, as you were saying, if you back Industry A, then Industry B and C don't get it. So. And one, one more. Thank you. Um, we've heard a lot today about um, the role of tech-based spin-outs, the role of tech companies, the role of manufacturing and service companies in very high R&D or high scientific and technological areas, um, and a lot about what sometimes gets described as the linear model of innovation. Um, I know from the work of many of the commissioners and others that a lot of innovation in the UK, particularly over the last, say, 20 years, has actually been the adoption of high technology of ICT in the rest of the economy, in the wider services sector, in retail and other business services. Um, if that, well, I guess two questions, do we see that likely to be a source of more productivity in the future? And if it is, what can, what does innovation policy to achieve that? All right, you guys want to? Go on, pick one. I can answer. I mean, I'll start with a question about the salaries for uh, engineers and then maybe uh, I'll have my colleague answer some of the other questions. Uh, the, uh, you're right. Uh, the, the you know the engineering skills uh, can be moved around, and uh, today we are designing some platforms for the NOC, and we're doing some work in the UK and some work in China, and it's seamless. You know, the, it's all through connected. So the two engineering offices uh, they're working, and, and we are able to produce an end product, and it can be done with engineering anywhere. It can be in our KL office, Jakarta office, anywhere. Uh, I think there are two things I, I want to say. What we've been seeing since the financial crisis 
we're actually seeing more uh, young, uh, we're seeing our industry becoming more attractive. I think more and more people are coming back to industry versus the financial sector. I think there is a, and, and we're, 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 and this is, uh, uh, which is healthy. I mean, in, in my book, it's, it's healthy. We're, we're able to attract that effect. And the other thing is that uh, we're also seeing that the uh, there is inflation in our sector with salaries, which again is healthy, because uh, for the best talent, people are willing to to pay. Now there are skills that you can you, you, you can uh, you can do something with uh, engineering skills overseas, but there are certain things that you absolutely have to do in the UK. So you can't operate a platform in the North Sea with you know, remotely, you have to have people. I mean, you can do something remotely. Uh, and and my, uh, my argument about uh, this whole business of promoting an industry like oil and gas is not only about, uh, it's not only about the, uh, the uh, uh, particular area of selling a man out, but it's also about uh, creating a hub of uh, technical excellence and knowledge where you are exporting a standard. And your export. When, when somebody comes in, I mean, for instance, one of the things, one of our businesses, we have a consultancy business uh, called Plant Asset Management, and we have about 400 people in it. And uh, following Mokando, all we do is integrity management. So we look at uh, stuff and we look at the, you know, what can be done and what could go wrong with the integrity of a particular platform. And following Mokando, we've had 70, 80 people in the in the uh, uh, Gulf of Mexico. They are providing advice to. Uh, uh, international oil companies there. And really, what you find, the, the, the origins of this is back in the late 80s, the, Alpha, the Piper Alpha disaster, which has triggered a new uh, sets of standards and regulations in the UK. You've got you know, the safety case for every new platform, you have a duty ownership concept and so on, which is in many ways a higher standard than what you have in the Gulf of Mexico. So, the the it's not I'm, I'm not arguing only about uh, you, you know you you and this is where you come back to the question of you have an excellence in something because the UK the excellence in the UK in oil and gas is not only because of the engineering talent that has gone into the, the industry but it's just the entire uh, 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 regulatory framework standards that were set what is expected of people when they join the profession if you've operated five years in the UK. That's a different experience than if it's operated five years on a platform in uh, Venezuela. You know, it's a completely different because you've operated to a much higher standard that is increasingly in demand around the world, and that's really what I was arguing about in terms of uh, exporting skills. I'm sorry, the the other questions uh, there was well, I, I <laughs> they, they, they were um, rather diverse. Let me just go back to. The one that mentioned the technology strategy board and the investment near markets, and um, whether anybody should smart, be smart enough to think they know exactly what to invest in. That's something that's still over horizon. I think the importance of having some government investment in that space, which is basically where researchers in universities are sort of beginning to let go and stay in the lab and you really want to get the engagement of, of business and, and commercialization is actually very important. And I, I share some of your disdain of picking winners, but there are some very important things for the government to do there, and that is actually to provide the incentive, provide the conditions, pr 
promote and support those things where the private sector want to join with universities and co-invest in, in something. And the outcome of that can be quite intangible. You may not get a startup company or whatever. It might put a lot of technical knowledge you know, into a business through that uh, particular engagement. But that is good. That's a good outcome of uh, public investment in, in research. So I think there is a lot to be done in that space, but I agree with you, putting a big bias into picking winners might not be the best outcome. There were a couple of other comments there, but I've actually, uh, I've actually forgotten what they are. <laughs> I mean, just, just on picking winners, it's difficult to pick losers, but in my mind, it's quite obvious sometimes when you pick winners. I mean, I'm, personally, I'm passionate about continuing to promote the oil and gas industry from this country because I've seen its impact around the world. Yeah. And I've seen the, the value that, has, uh, that it has created. And in many ways, uh, I, you know, I, I always argue that you should decouple the, the talent and the, the, the technology and the intellectual great power that you have from the resource. And in many ways, in this country, the people still associate the two together. But if you look at an example like Apple, you know, the manufacturing is taking place in China. But the, most of the value accrues in, in the U.S. You know, Apple makes $10 million a quarter. And it's the, it's the brain power and the intellect and the technology there. So you can actually have resources around the world, and you can do a lot of the commoditized business around the world, provided you have a center of excellence, you have the brain power, you have the expertise and the technology that you can leverage. And that's the thing that I continue to argue. And I think that would last well beyond the... Uh, demise of the or the the, uh, uh, the, uh, the end of the North Sea as a as a hydrocarbon basin. Okay, I think we should start thinking about wine now. So uh, maybe John and Tim, do you have one one last? Uh, I don't know. Okay, I'll give you uh, guys a chance to leave us with some some uh, concluding thoughts. Uh, but I can't help asking one last question, which you. We wave away um, which is the question of migration and visa policy, right? I mean, we all we all know, we all know it's crazy, but how bad is it? <laughs> I, I can only comment on what I see from the academic sector. Um, it was bad in as much that um, the message it sent to the wider world was pretty appalling. The <coughs> message that was sent was um, not well understood initially around the world. I, it looked much worse than it actually was. Um, it was a poor policy in as much that there was a real issue to be addressed in terms of people coming into the country with perhaps malintent and uh, you know, pretending they were doing something else. Uh, but it was the ultimate sledgehammer to crack a walnut. What has actually happened is that in a, a rather sort of cack-handed, this is not gets reported anyway. <laughs> look rather like a political statement. So I'll, I'll pretend it's an apolitical statement. It has been wound back. Bit by bit, it has been addressed. Um, to the point where, frankly, as a university, we're operating without great difficulty. It has made the process slower in some cases where actually it was a bit quicker before and you know one of the benefits for many people coming internationally to the UK is hugely attractive for all the reasons that you say is actually and particularly the LSE actually 
to stay on another couple of years and get some exposure to the business sector in the UK. It has actually made it not now impossible, it's actually quite possible, but rather slower in going back and getting a second visa to do that. So hopefully it has achieved something of the initial intent in terms of restricting undesirables. In fact, it is not um, as painful as it looked a couple of years ago, but actually it has made us a bit less efficient than we were. Any concluding thoughts? Anything? Uh, I, I think my concluding thought, I, I do go back to, I, I believe, top of this list is basically the infrastructure of this nation. I think you know, without that, we can have this conversation, and we're sort of fiddling at the margins. Um, if we don't fix this, it will progressively catch us out in the, in the, in the way that you say. I think it, because so much private money could come in that, I think a lot of other ambition would come on the back of the sorts of investments that start to pull us into the 21st century. So actually, that's top of mind, this. I think there's a massive amount of detail but we can talk about it forever, but if we don't address this big one, I think the conversations will have little purpose. I mean, my, my uh, two, two comments. On the, on the visas, I agree with uh, uh, everything that uh, uh, Keith uh, mentioned. Uh, I think we should look at the examples of people who have come to this country and who have created uh, uh, you know, a lot of uh, value, and you shouldn't uh, allow uh, a few rotten apples to destroy the value of uh, importing uh, talent. But also bringing in uh, foreign uh, direct uh, investment and capital to this country. And I, but, but at the same time, I think it's important for us to recognize what has worked. I mean, the UK, at the end of the day, in many ways, attracts more talent than many other countries in Europe. So, so I, I think whilst we would want it to be better, but. Uh, there is talent coming in from France and Italy and, and uh, lots of other places in southern Europe to this country uh, and even from some of the emerging markets. And uh, we have to recognize, I mean, there is a system here of people coming in and for a while being resident non-domicile, and it's quite unique and exceptional in Europe, and it has worked. And every uh, successive government, they have looked at, the, at this and said, uh, do we want to waive it? And they found that... Uh, it actually brings in a lot of value, and they've been sensible despite some of the political rhetoric. So whilst we want to do more, I think we should accept that there are good things that are taking place. Share the views on infrastructure, absolutely, and, and, and uh, ped uh, pressing the, the pedestal and doing a lot more. But really, I come back to this question about politicians being a lot more honest about uh, the importance of uh, working on I really think people have to recognize that we're not going to get the growth in the economy if we're going to go down to 35 hour a week, if we expect to have, you know, five or six day with uh, six weeks uh, holiday a year, and uh, if we uh, do not accept, the, you know, anything but the ideal job to start uh, on the uh, on uh, in the work ladder, it's a tough world. It's a very competitive world, and uh, we we need to. Uh, not only do better with uh, science and technology, but we need to have uh, as high a, uh, a level of worth ethics in this country as people in China and India and some other places around the world have. And unfortunately, we're losing them. 
Okay, thank you. I think this was an exceptionally insightful uh, uh, session, so I really want to uh, thank uh, our panelists and the public uh, for, uh, for, for something that will uh, certainly uh, give us a lot of uh, food for thought and will uh, certainly find its way in a big way in our final report. So thank you again for, for coming today. We really appreciate it. Thank you.